What's better is one day in your courts than thousands elsewhere. You're listening to an audio teaching from Cross Connection Church Houston. We're a small church located in Pasadena, Texas, and it is our mission to save the lost, equip the saved, serve both the lost and saved, and to send the equipped. To this end, we teach through the Bible on a verse-by-verse basis, starting at the beginning of a book and working until the end. If you would like to learn more about our church, you can find us at connectedtojesus.org or check us out on Facebook at Cross Connection Church Houston. We pray that this teaching would grow you in the grace and love of Jesus Christ our Lord. Tonight we're going to finish up our section titled Different Laws, and we've been looking at the laws mainly that God has given to the judges of Israel to help justly punish and uh, deal with those who break his laws. And uh, tonight we're going to look at some interesting laws. We're going to look at the law God give uh, concerning the Sabbath. Uh, we're going to look at three feasts that God says every male uh, in Israel is required to celebrate. And we're going to look at a promise that God gives of his presence and of his blessings to those who obey these promise, these uh, commands. So we see all these laws, and it kind of concludes with those who do it, these are the things that God is going to do for them. So let's start with the laws that God gave concerning uh, the Sabbath in verses 10 through 13. Six years you shall sow your land and gather in its produce, but the seventh year you shall let it rest and lie fallow, that the poor of your people may eat. And what they leave, the beast of the field may eat. In like manner you shall do with your vineyard and your olive grove. Six days you shall do your work, and on the seventh day you shall rest, that your ox and your donkey may rest, and the sons of your female servants and the stranger may be refreshed. And in all that I have said to you, be circumspect and make no mention of the name of other gods, nor let it be heard from your mouth." Now, if you remember back in the Ten Commandments, in the Fourth Commandment, we looked a little bit about this Sabbath law, the Sabbath command that God gave. But we looked at it in light of the one day a week where God said that everybody is going to get a day of rest. And now we see God reiterate that command here in verse 12. Six days you shall do your work, and on the seventh day you shall rest, that your ox Your donkey may rest, the son of your female servant, and the stranger may be refreshed. And so we noted this rest was not just for the master, because in that culture, in that time, it wasn't uncommon for the one who ruled and reigned to to rest and and to just take a a break in in the week. But the people who never got rest were the servants. They worked every single day. The animals, they worked every single day. And so God is giving this complete rest to the nation of Israel. I don't care if you're a servant. I don't care if you're an animal. I want everyone to enjoy one day a week of rest, this great benefit that God gives to Israel. And I want us to recall and remind ourselves of the fact that all of these laws were for the benefit of everyone. You know, God is looking after those who are poor. He's looking after the strangers. And typically in society, we kind of have laws for the, 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 the powerful and the influential. And then we kind of have nothing for those who are weak and poor. And so God's laws, you know, he kept making sure that everybody benefited. And here we see with the Sabbath, I want everyone to have this day of rest each and every week. But notice that this principle of the Sabbath rest applied to just more than the work week. 
See, now we see it expanded a little more in verses 11 and or 10 and 11. Notice what we're told. Six years you shall sow your land and gather its produce, but the seventh year you shall let it rest and lie fallow, that the poor of your people may eat, and what they leave the beast of the field may eat, in like manner you shall do with your vineyard and your olive grove. So there were the Sabbath weeks, so once a week, one day out of the seven, you were to take a day of rest, but also God says they're the Sabbath years. So we have the weeks and the years. So there's seven days in a week, and on the seventh day of the week, you would rest, and then every seventh year, you would let the ground rest. So not only is there a rest for every servant, for every animal, for every person, but God is saying within my Sabbath, there is a rest as well for the land. Uh, and so God wants everything to rest. And this was something very unique to the nation of Israel. All the nations around there at that time, they would not allow their land to rest. They would keep farming it. They would keep trying to sow seed and have things grow from it. Uh, it was a constant thing that happened all the time. Uh, and so this was not something that anyone else did. And you might think, you know, this is going to hurt Israel's chance of growing the amount of produce that the other nations can grow because they have a whole year that they're letting the land lie dormant while these other nations are still growing during these years. But you know what? Our modern science has discovered that this is actually a benefit and ultimately will produce more produce if you let the land lay fallow. We call it crop rotation. You let a portion of your land not do anything for a while and then you come back to it and it actually produces more. Uh, and so God knew that this would actually be of greater benefit and produce more if Israel would follow it. But he doesn't explain that. He doesn't get into the science of it. He doesn't tell them, oh, do this. Trust me, you're going to get more produce from it. He doesn't even talk about that. The reasoning that he gives for why this is going to transpire is actually something more practical and beneficial to people. Notice what he says, the reason why he wants the land to lay fallow once every seven years. He says, but the seventh year you shall let it rest and lie fallow. Why? that the poor of your people may eat, and what they leave, the beast of the fields may eat. And so we're looking at this Sabbath year. So six years, you can plant as much as you want, you can harvest as much as you want, you can do as much as you want, but that seventh year, I don't want you planting anything, I don't want you to do anything with the land, just let it sit, let it rest. It's a Sabbath rest for that land, but notice as that land is resting, there are two groups that get to use it. Two groups that get to glean from it, the poor and the animals. And this is something that's very important that God establishes here because not everyone's land would lay rest at the same time. It wasn't like all of Israel's land, the whole promised land, six years everybody would you know, uh, sow and reap and then the seventh year nobody did anything. That's not how it worked. You go buy a property, that's when things start for you. So six years in a row, you're going to sow. You're going to reap your harvest. On the seventh year for you, you're going to stop. So if I bought property in 2007 or 2000, in 2007, I would have to let the property go fallow for that whole year. I wouldn't uh, do any planting. I wouldn't do any harvesting. And then let's say that you bought one in 2001. So that means in 2008, your land would be at rest. And then in 2009, someone else's would be. And so at any given time in Israel, you'd have plenty of property that no one was doing anything on. 
Well, what was the purpose of that property besides just allowing it to have its rest? God says, well, there's a great purpose. There's plenty of poor people. They don't have enough to eat. They don't own any land. They don't have the benefit of gaining from the produce of the land because they don't have any land. So what do they get? How do they eat? How do they survive? Well, you know what? When your land has nothing on it because, you know, or you're not doing anything with it, it's still going to grow stuff. You know, things are still going to come out and all the poor people are allowed to come onto your land and take as much as your land will produce. That's how I'm going to provide for them. And the other group is animals. You know, you got plenty of animals that need to eat. Well, they can go graze in these areas that are lying fallow and so that the poor and the animal will have something to survive off of. And I think this is very interesting that God establishes this law not only for rest, but also for provision for the poor. And I think it's even interesting, even in kind of the context of, you know, our society and, and even a lot of these debates that we're seeing now and, and what do we do for poor and how do we help poor? And I just think it's interesting in God's system, it wasn't a free handout. He says, here, I'm going to establish it that those who have will make their land available one time a whole year, every seven years. They're going to have, and they're going to allow you to come on their land, but you are going to have to work. You're going to have to come on that land, and you're going to have to get all the food that you need and bring it back to your house so you can eat. So they're not going to do the work and come give it to you. They're just going to allow you to come on their land, and you're going to have to work if you want it. And I think it's interesting. God says, hey, I'm going to provide for the poor, but the poor is going to have to do something in order to get that provision. It's not just going to be given to them. They're going to have to go and work in order to receive it. But notice that God establishes this for their provision so they can have something. And I think it's just a great thing that God does to make sure, hey, I want my poor people in this land to always have enough. And so we're going to establish this not just for rest, but also for provision. And this is a great law. You know, we see so often, and we're going to even see it uh, as we come in on uh, Sunday to look at the next thing we see in John. They took the Sabbath, the religious leaders, and they totally twisted it into something that God never intended. They had all these different things that they added to it, and they missed it. It was no longer a day of rest. It was no longer a blessing. It was no longer providing what God wanted it to provide because they completely missed what it was established for and its purpose. But as God gives it, it's like, hey, I want you to have this. Every week, you're going to get a day off. Everybody, I don't care who you are, you could be the lowest of low servants, guess what, you still get a day off. No one's going to force you to work seven straight days. And the land, every seven years, it's going to get a rest. But you know what? As we see with most every single law that God gives, Israel fails. (laughs) And they fail in this one. The one where they're supposed to give the land rest every seven years. They actually go for 490 years straight without giving the land rest. God says every seven years, you better rest. (laughs) Yeah, right. Look at the rest of the the people. You know, we're just going to do like them. We're just going to keep sowing our seed. We're going to keep reaping our crop. They do that for 490 years. But think of this. In that 490 year span, guess who wasn't provided for? The poor. See, God established this so that the poor would have a place to go and get food. And so for that 490-year span of time, Israel and their greed, not following the law of God, is also not providing for the poor. And so God says, you know what? I'm going to have my land lay fallow like I said it should. You owe me 70 years. 490 years, every seventh year they should have let the land lay fallow. They owe God 70 years. And you see what God does? He says, fine, I am going to allow a foreign army to come 
and put you into captivity, draw you out of the land of Israel, and you're going to stay out for 70 years. And that's the amount of time, and God specifically says, this is why. You didn't let the land rest, I'm going to let it rest. You're not going to get to be there for 70 years because you didn't follow my laws, so you're going to be in bondage for 70 years, and then I'll let you go back. And so God takes this very seriously. The Israelites don't do it, but it's something that was for their blessing, like all the laws that God gives. And this is something that we need to recognize that, you know, with these different things that we see, and we'll see it even more as we transition into the tabernacle and all this stuff, it's just how it points to Jesus. And I love the Sabbath and the rest. And, you know, when they would just realize, look at what God wants. He wants to give me rest. And we see that so clearly in our relationship with Jesus. If Jesus is the one that ultimately gives rest. And it was pointing to the ultimate rest that we would have in our relationship with Jesus Christ. And I think this is one of the reasons why God says in verse 13, And in all that I have said to you, be circumspect and make no mention of the names of other gods, nor let it be heard from your mouth. The Sabbath was to be connected to God and God alone. This rest would be connected to God and God alone. And he said, I don't want to hear of any other God. I don't even want to hear it come out of your mouth, a name of another God, as you celebrate and take this rest. It should be about the rest that I'm giving in connection with me. And that's why even today, as we take this Sabbath rest, when we take time to, to get together with believers, take time to grow in our relationship with the Lord, take time to make sure that he's the focus, because ultimately it's pointing to Jesus, and God did not want them to get a skewed understanding of what this was. So that's the law concerning the Sabbath, not only every week, but every seven years. We see that the land is given this rest. And now God's going to give some laws concerning these main feasts. Three main feasts is what God wants every man in Israel to celebrate because they all are very significant and they all point to something very important. Notice what we're told in verses 14 through 19. Three times you shall keep a feast to me in the year. You shall keep the feast of unleavened bread. You shall eat unleavened bread seven days as I commanded you. And at the time appointed in the month of Abib, for it, for in it you came out of Egypt, none shall appear before me empty. And the feast of harvest, the first fruits of your labors which you have sown in the field, and the feast of ingatherings at the end of the year, when you have gathered in the fruit of your labors from the field. Three times in the year all your males shall appear before the Lord God. You shall not offer the blood of my sacrifice with leavened bread, nor shall the fat of my sacrifice remain until morning. The first of the first fruits of your land you shall bring into the house of the Lord your God. You shall not boil a young goat in its mother's milk. So here God gives three feasts, three very important feasts. He says, I want every single male, and this would be anybody who's 13 or older was considered a man in that culture, you have to celebrate these three feasts. And actually, as we come to the book of Leviticus, you'll see more details of how they were meant to celebrate these feasts. And there were more feasts. These weren't the only feasts that God had for the nation of Israel, but he sets aside these three. And as we're going to look, I think there's some good reason why these are so valuable and important to the Lord. The first feast is the Feast of Unleavened Bread. 
which is connected with the Passover feast. Now remember, we looked at the Passover as they exited Egypt and the whole symbolism of that and you know the, the death angel passing over because they took the blood of the lamb and they put it on the doorpost and lentil. But as they took the time to celebrate that, that concluded with the feast of unleavened bread. And so they would eat the lamb that they killed and they would eat it with unleavened bread bread. Uh, and it was ultimately to do two things. Each one of these feasts have a dual purpose, to look back at something that God had done for them, but also to point them to something that God was going to do in the future. And for most of them, they kind of just were looking back. And this one was real clear. I mean, it just happened. It wasn't long ago that God had delivered them from Egypt. And so this feast was a reminder. Look at how I delivered you. Remember that. As you take the Passover together and then you have this unleavened bread, I want you to remember that. Now remember, the reason why the bread was unleavened is they didn't have time to put leaven in the dough and let it rise. They had to be ready at any moment for God to take them out of Egypt. Hey, I'm going to do this quickly. And so, hey, you guys need to be ready to go. And so they had this unleavened bread with their um, Passover lamb. Uh, and it was a yearly reminder of God's deliverance from Egypt. So that was something it pointed back to, but it also pointed to something, prepared them for something that was coming. And you see, leaven in the Bible is a picture of sin, and they were eating unleavened bread. And when you look at the picture, it's just great of you have this lamb that was killed, the blood that was splattered, and the unleavened, thinking of the sinless reality of that connection. So you have the sinless lamb whose blood was shed, and we see, what is it pointing to? Well, clearly it's pointing to Jesus and what he would do on the cross to be the ultimate lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. As we saw even John the Baptist, that's what he refers to Jesus as. Behold, the lamb of God pointing back to these feasts, celebrations that the Israelites would have been aware of. And so it's pointing back to the Exodus and how God provided for that. It also pointing towards Jesus. And it's no coincidence when it happened, you know, because notice that Jesus dies specifically when people are partaking of this Passover lamb. You know, when you look at, you know, the, the chronological events of all the end of Jesus' life and when things transpire, it wasn't coincidental that he is hanging on the cross while people are celebrating the Passover. They're eating the lamb. They're taking this unleavened bread while the true lamb is there on a cross dying for the sins of the world. God chose that particular time to do this because all this was pointing to it. You know, every time they have this lamb, every time they have this unleavened bread, it's pointing to when this ultimately was going to happen in the future, and God has it happen on that exact day that they would celebrate that. The second feast that God says was required for all men to partake of is the Feast of Harvest. During this feast, the Israelites, it was the time of harvest, so they would have their harvest, they just, you know, the the Wheat crop grows, they get the harvest together, they're starting to bring it in, and what they were to do is to leave the, or offer the first fruit of the harvest to the Lord. So they take the first part of the wheat, they were to make some bread out of it, and they were to offer that bread unto the Lord. And it was a, an offering that was to thank God for the harvest, but it was also the first fruit, which was, hey, you know what? As you bless this first fruit of our harvest, we also believe that you will bless the remainder of the harvest as well. 
Now, this feast was to remind Israel that God deserves their best, to keep them in the habit of giving them him the first, not the leftovers, which I think we struggle with a lot today. This feast took place 50 days after the Passover unleavened bread uh, feasts, which are connected together. And so right when that concludes, you got 50 days that transpire, and now you have this feast, and the Greek word for 50 is pente, which is why you might know it as Pentecost. Uh, it's the same feast. We refer to it as Pentecost because of this Greek word, but um, either way, uh, the Jews would have looked at it more uh, as the Feast of Harvest, and we call it the Feast of Pentecost. But once again, we see events that transpire in the early church and the end of Jesus's life that went on specific days that weren't coincidental. God specifically chose the day that Jesus would die, Passover, when all the other lambs were being sacrificed, Jesus was sacrificed, and we know the events leading up after that. Three days later, he rises from the dead. Then he presents himself to lots of people for 40 days. Then he ascends back to heaven. But right before he goes back to heaven, he tells his followers, wait in Jerusalem for the power of the Holy Spirit before you go into all the world and preach the gospel. That's my command, go on all the world and preach the gospel. But before you go, you got to wait for the power of the Spirit to enable you to accomplish the task. And so this group of followers goes to Jerusalem and they're waiting. So you have the death, three days later, the resurrection, 40 days. Remember, there's only 50 days from the Passover to Pentecost. And so just a few days after Jesus rises from the dead and this group is waiting in prayer for the power of the Holy Spirit to come on the day of Pentecost, we have the first fruit of the church. The power of the Holy Spirit comes for the first time to indwell the church and we have the start of the church there on Pentecost. Another thing that was not coincidental, God was waiting specifically for that because these feasts were pointing to something he was going to do even greater than what he did in the past. The third feast was the Feast of Ingathering. This feast took place at the end of the year after everybody had gathered all of their you know, food from the harvest. Uh, and that's why they call it the in-gathering. They would take all that, they'd put it in their barns, they'd store it all away so that they could have food for the winter. But it was also referred to as the Feast of Tabernacles. Uh, and it was interesting because it was kind of a dual celebration of you know thanksgiving to God for all that he provided for the year, the harvest. But it was also to look back at the time in the wilderness and the Feast of Tabernacles, they actually did something to remind them of that for a whole week. They would go out basically camping. They would build these little structures that they would live in, mainly with palm branches and things. And it was to remind them of that tent tabernacle dwelling life that they had for 40 years in the wilderness because they didn't have any real structure as in a home that they built because they were just kind of wandering for that time living in tents and it was just a reminder of God's provision during that time as they tabernacled out there in the wilderness with God and he took care of them during that time um, and these feasts actually point to two things they point to the first and the second coming of Christ both in which he tabernacles, dwells among us. You know, he did it the first time when he came to, to pay for our sins, but he's going to come, he came as the, the suffering servant, but he's going to come dwell again. 
The second time he's going to come dwell as the king of kings and lord of lords to rule and reign on this earth for a thousand years. But both are kind of pointing to and preparing people for what God's going to do. He's already come the first time. And we can be confident that he's going to come again. And I believe that coming is getting closer and closer to us. But at the very end of this feast, or the three, we're told something that you just kind of maybe read if you've ever read this. And it just seems really odd, really out of place. Look what he says at the end of verse 19. You shall not boil a young goat in its mother's milk. You kind of think to yourself, what in the world does that have to do with these three feasts? Okay, I get that I'm supposed to celebrate these feasts, but... Don't boil a young goat in its mom's milk. Okay, that just seems real random, God, to kind of throw that out there. And the reason it's random and weird for us is because we don't understand the historical significance of this. Because during this time, there was a superstition among the pagan world. And the superstition was, if you boiled a goat in its mother's milk, and you took that, and you sprinkled that over you know, all of your uh, plants and everything, the seed and stuff, then you would have this amazing harvest. Uh, and so it was just a pagan practice of like, hey, if you boil this goat in its mom's milk and you take that and you spread that over your lands, you can guarantee that when the harvest time comes, your harvest is going to be so much better than so-and-so's. And God's just saying, hey, I don't want any of that stuff. Don't you buy into that nonsense, that superstitious junk. There's only one person that's going to bless your harvest, and that's me. You look to me to be the one to do it. All these feasts are looking back to my provision, to how I take care of you, and I don't want you getting caught up with the superstitious nonsense that these other pagan groups around you are um, doing. And so don't imitate them. Instead, look to me. So that's the end of the laws that that God gives here. We've seen chapter 21 and and chapter 22 and now half of chapter 23. Uh, A lot of them directed towards the judges of Israel of how to justly deal with crime. And then some of them just like, hey, for everybody, all you men, make sure you do these three feasts. Everybody, make sure you you uh, abide by the Sabbath law. And and now we come to the conclusion where God's going to say, hey, there's some blessings for you. There's some provision for you. But I want us to know that it's in connection with obedience. All right, if you guys actually do this, because I've given you the Ten Commandments, yeah, you got to do that, and I've given you all these other laws, good. If you obey, I got some great promises of provision and protection and blessing, but they're connected with your obedience to what I've told you. So let's start with the promise of God's presence in verses 20 and 21. Behold, I send an angel before you to keep you in the way and to bring you into the place which I have prepared. Beware of him and obey his voice. Do not provoke him, for he will not pardon your transgressions, for my name is in him. So notice what God says here. I'm going to send an angel before you, the Israelites. And notice that this angel is very significant because we're told he leads the Israelites. He commands obedience from the Israelites, which we don't see from any normal angel. And he has the right of judgment over the Israelites. Once again, kind of an odd thing for an angel to have. But we understand the most significant thing of all is God's name is in him. This isn't some ordinary angel. This isn't like Gabriel. This is what we've seen already in the Old Testament, another instance of the second person of the Trinity, Jesus 
in appearance in the Old Testament. If you look in your Bible and you'll notice the angel is capital A instead of lowercase a. Why? Because the translators want you to know this is not referring just to any angel. This is referring to God. Uh, and so this is an instance where uh, God the Father is saying, hey, I'm going to send before you the second person of the Trinity, God the Son, to go before you, but he's going to be one who judges you. He's going to be one that you better obey. He's going to be one that does this for you. But this is speaking of, and it's another instance of, um, Jesus in the Old Testament. But I think it's quite interesting that this angel went before the Israelites to bring them to the place that God had prepared for them. Because remember, right now they're getting these laws. They're at Mount Sinai. They haven't made it to the promised land. And God's saying, hey, I have a promise for you. I'm going to send, ultimately, my son to prepare and to guide you to where I have you to go, which is the promised land. And I think that's quite interesting because that is what Jesus is doing right now for us as believers as well. John chapter 14, verses 2 and 3, it says, In my Father's house are many mansions. Jesus is speaking. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you, and if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. It's such a wonderful picture and the true reality for us as believers that everyone who has placed their faith in Jesus Christ is saying, hey, I go to heaven to prepare a place specifically for you. And if I prepare that place for you, you can be confident I'm going to come back for you and receive you to myself. I'm going to bring you to the place that I have prepared for you, just like we see here. God had prepared the Israelites for the promised land, and Jesus ultimately was bringing them to that place that God had prepared for them. And what a great picture of Jesus, both in the Old and New Testament. But you know what? There's something important to note here. And that's the difference between the relationship the Israelites have with God versus the relationship that people who have put their trust in Jesus have with God. Uh, you can look at it from the standpoint of the old covenant that God made with the nation of Israel versus the new covenant that we have in our relationship through Jesus Christ. And the reason this is so important to note here is because notice that Jesus' presence with us, with, with the nation of Israel and preparing a place, you know, for them, it's based on obedience. If you obey, this blessing is yours. If you do what I tell you, there's all sorts of things that are going to come your way. But if you don't, you're going to miss out on a lot. There's going to be, you're not going to have these things. But, you know, when it comes to the new covenant and our relationship with Christ, we have such a different basis for what we receive. It's all about our faith in Jesus that we receive the things that God gives to us as opposed to our performance and our obedience. And whether we do good enough or not, God's saying, no, because Jesus was perfectly obedient and you have placed your faith in his work, now all these blessings are yours based on your faith in what Jesus has done. Whereas the Old Testament, it's like, you guys, you got to perform. You got to do you got to accomplish. And if you do, there's blessings. But if you don't, there's cursings. And so it's a very different relationship that the Israelites have with God versus what we have. And we see that even more uh, as we come to um, verse 21. Um, Beware of him. Obey his voice. Do not provoke him, for he will not pardon your transgression, for my name is in him. Notice here, yeah, yeah, beware of who I sent, but notice... 
obey him. Don't provoke him. He's not going to pardon your transgressions that, hey, you need to have this relationship of obedience or else you're going to have a relationship of consequence from him. And, you know, this is something that's just the difference that we have. And notice we see even more of that in verses 22 through 26. But if you indeed obey his voice and do all that I speak, then I will be an enemy to your enemies and an adversary to your adversaries. For my angel will go before you and bring you into the Amorites and the Hittites and the Perizzites and the Canaanites and the Hivites and the Jebusites. I will cut them off. You shall not bow down to their gods nor serve them nor do according to their works, but you shall utterly overthrow them and completely break down their sacred pillars. So you shall serve the Lord your God, and he will bless your bread and your water, and I will take sickness away from your midst of you. No one shall suffer miscarriage or be barren in your land. I will fulfill the number of your days. Man, we got some great blessings that God lists in these verses of what he's willing to do for the nation of Israel. Note them. First, I am going to be an enemy to your enemies. I am going to be an adversary to your adversaries. And this would have just been so encouraging for a group of slaves who has no military experience or fighting experience. They're about to try to take a land full of armies, and God's saying, don't you worry, I'll be the enemy to your enemies. I'll be the adversary to your adversaries. I'll take care of these groups of people that are going to come against you. So this is one of the blessings. He says, a second, I'll go before them, and I'll cut your enemies off. Gets more specific of what he's going to do. I'll bless your bread and water. I'll take away sickness from you. I will keep people who are women from suffering miscarriages or being barren, and I will fulfill the number of your days. What a great group of blessings that God says. But notice there is a phrase in here that's important not to miss. They only come if the Israelites obey. Notice what he says. If you indeed obey his voice, speaking of the the angel of God, Jesus And do all that I speak, if you obey and do what I tell you to, then I'll bless you with all this stuff. Obedience and doing this is the prerequisite for the blessing that comes. And this is the the huge difference. You know, and when you look at the Old Testament, I see so many believers, they get kind of hung up and they start leading themselves to this works-based relationship with God because they see all these things that God is telling the nation of Israel, do, perform, and I will bless. You do, perform, and I will bless. You don't, and you don't do this, then I will curse. And we start thinking, oh, I got to do and perform, or, or and I got to, you know, I have this relationship with God, and we got to realize, no, our relationship in the new covenant is so different than the one in the Old Covenant. And this is the the crazy thing. One of my favorite chapters in the Bible is Ephesians chapter 1. We have all these blessings. You've been blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. You've been adopted. You've been redeemed. You've been justified. And we have two words that come in connection with all these blessings. And those two words are in Christ. Not because you obeyed, you have every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Because you obeyed, you're redeemed. Because you obeyed, you're justified. Because you obeyed, you're adopted as a child of God. Because you're obeyed, you know, you get this and that. No, because you're in Christ, these blessings are now available to you. And they're just very different relationships that we get all of these things 
because of what Jesus accomplished because of his obedience. So even because we're all disobedient, but yet we still receive blessing because we put our faith in the obedience of Jesus on our behalf, whereas the Old Testament saints didn't have that. It was like, well, we got to perform or else we're in trouble. And now I'm not saying that obedience is something that we shouldn't worry about, shouldn't something that we concern ourselves with, because, you know, the New Testament also reveals that there are definitely consequences for sin, consequences for disobedience, that God loves those that sin and he loves them so much that we're told that he disciplines those he loves. So there is a, a godly discipline. There is a natural consequence that comes. But note very clearly that our standing before God, our salvation, our justification, our redemption, our forgiveness, our adoption, every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, and the list goes on and on, that has no bearing on whether or not you're obedient. That has no bearing on whether or not you fail today or succeed today. It's not like, well, I did better today, and so now I'm more saved than I was. I'm more justified than I was. I'm more of a child of God than I was. No, that's all based on putting your trust in Jesus. Now, there's a sanctification process where God wants us to mature and grow, and that's the part where he says, I want you to learn how to obey. I want you to learn how to trust. I want you to learn how to be more like me, and it takes you know our whole life where we continue to hopefully mature in that, but our standing doesn't change. And that's the thing that we got to hold on to and recognize, you know, God doesn't love me more or love me less because of a day that I'm successful or a day that I'm a failure. I'm not more of his child, just like your own children. I mean, we have days with our children where they're little monsters and we have days with our children that they're little angels. And it's not like, well, I love you now and I hate you here. You know, they're still our child. The status hasn't changed. You know, we love them regardless in the same way. God, our Father, loves us the same. Now, when we are sinning, just like a parent, he's going to say, you know what? I'm going to discipline that. I'm going to deal with that because I know what's best for you and I want to help you. So it's not that we escape, you know, an, an earthly consequence, but ultimately, you know, all these things that are for eternity, you know, our status with the Lord, it is not based on us trying to work, us trying to achieve, us trying to do things like the Israelites had to do. Uh, and so the new covenant is just such a far superior covenant and relationship. And so as we look at these things, I think it just shines a light to, you know, even like when you look back for us, it's like, man, what they had was far inferior to what we presently have in Christ and what a blessing that we have uh, and we need to take advantage of it. Well, now God's going to tell us how he's going to help Israel take possession of the land. He says, hey, here's the promise. I'll be an enemy to your enemies. I'll be an adversary to your adversary. I'll cut them off. That sounds great. How are you going to do that, God? Well, he's going to tell us in verses 27 through 30. I will send my fear before you. I will cause confusion among all the people to whom you come and will make all your enemies turn their backs to you. And I will send hornets before you, which shall drive out the Hivite and the Canaanite and the Hittite from before you. I will not drive them out before you in one year, lest the land become desolate and the beasts of the field become too numerous for you. Little by little, I will drive them out before you until you have increased and you inherit the land. So notice here, God says, there's three practical things that I'm going to do to be an enemy to your enemies, to be an adversary to your adversaries, to cut them off. Well, how are you going to ultimately enable us, this, you know, army-less trained, you know, we have none in, in, the, in a sense of fighting battles. What are you going to do, God, to, to help us take this land? He says, well, there's three things I'll do. First, I'm going to send my fear before you. 
That, that as these nations that, you know, maybe nations of war that they're used to battling and fighting, well, they don't know what's coming against them. I'm going to send my fear to them. That they're going to have a fear like they've never had before. I'm also going to send confusion among them. And then there's a one really interesting one that maybe you haven't noted before. I'm going to send hornets before them. So not just my fear and confusion, I'm going to send hornets to drive people out. And this is interesting because the book of Joshua is the start. You know, we have Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, and that whole time, you know, they're in the wilderness. They haven't even started to try to take the land. It's not till the book of Joshua that now they're moving out of the wilderness and coming to the promised land, and we see God fulfilling what he said he will do. And it's interesting, you see all three of these things. You see fear coming across people that, and confusion where you see several instances of the nation of Israel showing up and, you know, we have even times where armies are stabbing each other, you know, and they don't have to do anything. They just kill each other. There's this fear, this confusion, you know, and God just does that to them to ultimately enable the nation of Israel to take that portion of the land. But we also see in Joshua chapter 24 that God says specifically against the, I think it was the Hittites and the Amorite kings, I sent hornets to drive out their armies away from you. That God literally used hornets, his swarms of hornets, to get rid of all these people, just like he said here. He could have used so much more. He could have just wiped them all out however he wanted to. But these are the ways that he chose to bring Israel into the land. But the thing I think is really interesting to note and maybe more practical for us today is notice what he says in verses 29 and 30. I will not drive them out before you in one year, Lest the land become desolate and the beasts of the fields become too numerous for you, little by little I will drive them out before you until you have increased and you inherit the land. I'm sure it was real encouraging. I'm going to be an enemy to your enemies. I'm going to be an adversary to your adversaries. I'm going to cut them off from the face of the earth. I'm going to send my fear, my confusion. I'm going to even send hornets. Woo, man, when we get there, everybody's going to be gone. Well, not so fast. Little by little. This is going to happen. I'm not going to remove everyone right away. And this is something I think is important for us to know, because I'm sure they were just like, hey, we're ready to walk into the promised land and we're ready for everyone to be gone. That's what you're going to do, right? God, we got our problem. You're just going to completely remove it. There's not going to be any adversary. There's not going to be any battle. There's not going to be any problem. You're just going to pull everybody out. All at once, and the land is going to be desolate for us to go take at any time that we want. But God says, no, little by little, I'm going to drive them out from before you. And notice God gives two reasons why. Practical reasons. Reasons to protect. Reasons to take care of the nation of Israel. First, he does this little by little approach. Notice he says, so the land does not become desolate because if it did, the beasts of the field will become too numerous for you. If I clear out everybody in the promised land, by the time you get to the northern parts and the, the far east and the west, because no one's dwelling there, the beasts of the field are going to take over and they're going to become too numerous for you to handle and you to deal with. And so I'm just going to leave people there because as the people are dwelling there and living there, they got the beasts under control and I'll let them stay there. And little by little, you're going to start occupying more and more of the land. And as you get to those places where those people are, then I'll deal with them. And then when you come in, guess what? The ground's just going to have been uh, sown. And they're just going to have a harvest that's going to be reaped. It's not going to be desolate. It's not going to have beasts running riot. I'm going to do that for your protection. 
But also notice the second reason God has this little by little approach. He says, until you have increased and you're ready to take the land. Now, I want you to understand that the, the amount of land that God gave to the nation of Israel, we'll actually see a picture of it in a moment, was a lot. And at this point in time, the size of the nation wouldn't get anywhere close to occupying it. So when you increase, when you increase in your number, when, when you grow as a nation, and obviously every year as they have more children, that's just going to be a natural byproduct, you will be more capable of actually occupying the land. Because if you can't occupy, you got like a, a little family in this whole city and, and another little family in that. Well, guess what's happened? All the people that I pulled out of here are going to come back uh, and they're just going to see that there's a few of you and now you're going to have problems. So when you grow to the point where you can actually occupy the land, we're going to start moving more and more into what I have for you. And so this little by little approach is very interesting and I think it's applicable to us because you know, we have these similar types of things where we come into a situation where, you know, we have a problem. We have, you know, an enemy. And we ultimately kind of just want God just to, hey, remove it all, take it all, deal with it all. And I find in my own life, and perhaps you have as well, that we see God doing this approach more frequently than just, hey, I'll just take care of everything. It's just little by little, you know what, I'm not going to pull everything out right away. And it's for your protection. It's for your benefit. And that's the part that we sometimes miss. And I'm sure the Israelites at this point, many of them miss. Like, what are you doing, God? Why don't you just do it all right now? Well, no, no, no. you got to understand, if I leave it desolate, you're going to have problems. You, know, you guys aren't actually ready yet. You need to increase. And so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to wait, and we're just going to take one step at a time. And I think that's how we so often are. It's just like, hey, little by little, one step at a time, one day at a time. We're going to make a victory here. We're going to get closer to where I want you. And I know you'd love me just to kind of part the waters here, move everything aside, and you just say, oh, I can see how it's all going to work out. Well, no, we're just going to take it one step at a time. And a lot of it is because God wants us to grow. He wants us to increase. You're not ready for this. And as you increase, as you grow, as you mature, you're going to be able to occupy more. You're going to be able to, to do what I have for you. But there's stuff I need to do in you. And so we're going to not take this too quickly. We're not going to take too big of steps here. We're just going to have this little by little approach. So God's not going to go quickly, but he is going to send his fear. He is going to send his confusion. He is going to send hornets. He's getting ready to bring the nation of Israel to the land that he promised them. But now God finishes with how much of the land he's going to give them, but also a final warning. A warning that's going to be very important for them, unfortunately one that they're not going to heed, uh, maybe one that we should take note of. Verse 30 and 31, or 31 through 33. And I will set your bounds from the Red Sea to the sea, Philistia, and from the desert to the river. For I will deliver the inhabitants of the land into your hand, and you shall drive them out before you. You shall make no covenant with them, nor with their gods. They shall not dwell in your land, lest they make you sin against me. For if you serve their gods, it will surely be a snare to you. So God's talked about the promised land and, and giving them the promised land. I'm sure there's been all these thoughts about how great it's going to be. But they have yet to really grasp 
the size of the land. Where is the boundaries? Like it goes from what to what? Like what is actually our land? Where does it start? Where does it end? And now God is giving them some um, specific geographical stopping and starting points to help them get a picture of the size of the land that they have. And there's some other portions of scripture where God shares some things as well. This one makes it a little more difficult because we have some things that are really clear and some things that aren't as clear because notice he says from the Red Sea. Okay, well, we know where the Red Sea is. It's quite large. So is it at the very bottom or the top? But at least we know where the Red Sea is to the sea. Well, which sea? Is it the Mediterranean Sea? Is it the Black Sea? Uh, you know, those are two very, you know, different destinations. And so there's kind of uh, a different thought into that. From the desert to the river. What river? Most people believe the Euphrates River. Uh, and so this is where there's kind of, you know, then there's other portions of Scripture that talk about things. And so this is the largest concept of what um, the land would have been. Uh, and so if you note Israel and know the size of Israel, it is a tiny little kind of triangle right next to the eye. Uh, that's about what they occupy today. Uh, and so this could be a little bit bigger than um, this is kind of the, the largest possible thought that there. But uh, the one thing that all scholars and commentators are in agreement with is the time that Israel occupied the most was in the time of the reign of Solomon, the king of Israel. And even during that time, they didn't occupy all that God had given them. And I think that's a sad reality. Like literally in their whole entire existence, God says, here is the promised land. And it's going to be from this point to this point and this point and this point. And when they go into the land, even in their heyday, when they have the great King Solomon with the, the wisest man in the world, whose dad was King David, they still don't occupy everything that God had given them. And I think there's a, a good lesson for us. Because I think there's so much that we've been given. And we just noted it. It's not because of uh, you know, our performance. It's because of our relationship in Christ that we have with Jesus. Every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. You know, We have spiritual gifts. We have talents. We have so much that God says, here. And I think sadly for many believers, we don't have any concept of it. We're not walking in it. Just like the nation of Israel. It's like, man, you've got all this land and you only occupy a smaller percentage of it. Where God says, I got all this for you, all these things I want to do in you, all these gifts that I've given to you, all these ways that I want to use you. And it's your choice. Do you want to enjoy it all? Do you want to step out in faith and, and really um, trust me with it? Or are you just going to kind of occupy only a little of what I've given you? Well, God ends with a warning. A warning for them, and I think a good practical warning for us in our day as well. You shall make no covenant with them, speaking of those in the land that promise that they're going to go, nor with their gods. They shall not dwell in your land, lest they make you sin against me. For if you serve their gods, it will surely be a snare to you. So here's God's warning. You're going to go into this land. There are going to be all these people. I'll be an enemy to them. I'll be an adversary to them. I'll cut them off. But here's the problem that you're going to have. You're going to want to make covenants with them. Don't do it. We're going to see in Joshua, a clever group gets a covenant with the nation of Israel. 
And the way that they're clever is they are a neighbor, like they are right next door, and the Israelites are just, you know, taking, you know, people down, destroying armies, God's doing this great work, and they're freaking out, thinking, man, we're next, he's there, you know, the army of God's going to destroy us, and so they get this moldy bread, they wear these rags for clothes, they get sandals with holes all in them, and it looks like they've been traveling for a long, long time. And they come up to the Israelites and they say, oh, we're from this far away country. And we've heard of the power of your God. And we want to make a covenant with you. Make a covenant with us that you won't kill us. That you won't destroy us when you finally get to our country, which is so far from here. I mean, look at our moldy bread and our tear, you know, torn up clothes. And they believe them. They think they're not far away. And so they make a covenant with them and they find out that they're neighbors and they're a thorn in the Israel's flesh inside pretty much their whole existence. Uh, and so God warns them, do not. <laughs> I don't care how good the story is. Don't make a covenant with any of these people, nor with their gods. And that's another thing the nation of Israel is guilty of. Making covenants with foreign gods, following foreign gods. Don't let them dwell in your land lest you sin against me. For if you serve their gods, it will surely be a snare to you. And I think that's one of the things as you look at the nation of Israel, as you look at their life and their patterns, so often they allow the world in. The world then leads them to worshiping other gods, and it is a sin against God and a snare to them. Then they repent, they get rid of the world, and then they do it all over again. And this is just this pattern where they just get back to this place of ignoring what God says and we look at them and sometimes we think, what a bunch of idiots. But then we just need to look in the mirror in our own relationship with God. And how often do we allow the world in? How often do we start following the ways of the world, ultimately living for the gods of this world and realizing, hey, it causes us to sin against God and it brings a stumbling block in front of us. You know, we're guilty as well as believers of doing this exact thing. And God gives us warning. Hey, don't do it. Steer clear of it. Recognize the consequence of the people in the world, the way in which they live, the gods that they worship, the influence that they want to bring into your life, which is going to lead you away from me, you got to be aware of that and careful of that and stay away from it because it will be a snare to you and destroy you. And so I think a good warning for us as well. So now that we've seen these laws, I just want to bring up the reminder of the benefit. God gave all these. We've seen it, man. Even the worst, the lowest, even the thief was you know, protected. Even the poor was taken care of. Over and over again, we see that God established laws to make sure it's just not the rich, the influential, and the powerful that get the good stuff. That everyone was treated equally. That everyone was justly dealt with in God's system. Their laws was for the benefit and the protection of everyone. And the thing that I really am taken by when I look at this is when we come to the commandments of God, they're not just for the nation of Israel. We look at the Ten Commandments, they're for us today. And we think to ourselves, man, God, look at thou shalt not, thou shalt not, thou shalt not. All you're trying to do is spoil my fun. All you're trying to do is ruin my life. Don't do this. Don't do this. Don't do this. Don't do this. When what we need to see is these are given for our benefits and for our protection. Just like a parent's. You know, it seems like the word we say more than anything, no, stop, don't do it. Oh, you're trying to spoil my life. No, actually, I'm trying to protect you. I'm trying to teach you so that you can be blessed and have the greatest benefit that you can in life. And God's doing the same thing, and we need to recognize these laws are for our benefit. When he says, don't do this, 
It's not because he's trying to rob us from some joy. He's trying to protect us from some consequence of pursuing the sin that this world keeps tempting us with. And so as we look at these laws, hopefully remember these laws, the just way that God deals with these laws, to remember, hey, they're for our benefit and our protection. And we shouldn't look at them in this negative light of like, I have to, I guess. No, I want to because I know that my father only gives me what is good for me and I want to follow what he tells me because I know it's best for me. And if I'll just listen and obey, my life will be so much better than trying to fight him and get the discipline that he brings in the process.